Hey, good morning, everybody. All two of you, awesome. Hey, yeah, the rapture did not happen. Okay, just so you know, you're okay. Um, so, yeah, the ladies are up at camp. The young adults are out at uh, Cape Disappointment, and everybody's scattered. So it's one of those mornings. But uh, like Gideon, we've got a remnant, right? And God can work through the remnant, so we're excited. Hey, we're, if you're new or visiting, welcome. We just want to say hi. I got a chance to meet several of you this morning. And uh, we're in a new study. We're in the study of 1 John called Walking in the Light. Last week was the first message. So if you want to tag on that and get caught up, you can go online and you can uh, view that at our website and uh, check that out. And uh, last week we saw that uh, John was claiming to be the eyewitness to the events of who Jesus really was, fully God and fully man. And now John's going to expand his introduction. And one of the big themes in 1 John is light. All right, you're going to see it all through the book. It's going to come back at it numerous times. It's going to loop through several times in different ways. And we're going to begin that looping this morning as we look at this theme of light. So will you join me in prayer? Let's seek the Lord's heart. Father, you are light. You are light and in you there's no darkness at all. In us there's darkness, but not in you. Lord, uh, we seek you this morning as we are gathered together, as we walk through what we know your word says, as we walk through what John highlights. He's obviously contrasting your light to the light that the Gnostics claim to have. And Lord, as, as we wrestle with that in our culture, our culture claims to have light. We seek you, Lord, that your light would prevail. We ask this morning that any of us are caught in darkness. We are caught and trapped by lies or strategies or schemes that the enemy's laid out that you would shed your light this morning. Lord, if anybody online is watching that, same thing. And Lord, we seek you for that as we go through this and pray this in your great name. Amen. All right. All right, we'll start with this, 1 John uh, 1.6. This is the message that you have heard from him. And, and proclaim to you that we have heard from him, proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. In this gospel, John uh, uses some wonderful word pictures. We've already mentioned light uh, to get across the nature of God and his essence. It's not just the idea of God, but the idea of what is he like? What is he actually as a person like. And uh, John uses some great words. He uses God is love, right? If you remember John's gospel for God so what? Loved the world. That's the signature stamp imprint of his heart towards us. God is love. God is life. That all life that we know emanates from God. God created life. We don't know life apart from him. We think we can have life apart from him, but John says we really can't. And then this morning we land on this great theme, God is light. Right? You just look at those words. God is love. I think John's a genius. John's a genius. He wrote this stuff over 2,000 years ago, and it still works like today. It's incredible. So let's work with this light illustration this morning. All right, we're going to walk through this. Engage your minds. You guys are not rookies. You have been in the Word before. You have read through. Many of you are reading through again with us. As we're reading through the Bible, you're familiar with the places where this all pops up. So just use your mind this morning. Let God engage it. Uh, you may, God may take you to a couple places where we don't even cover this morning, and that's absolutely fine and fantastic. 
The Bible is clear that light is a part of the character of God. It's a description of who he is. And it's not only what he is, but what he produces. God produces light. We walk in the light. Um, light emanates from God. First Timothy, in First Timothy, Paul uses light to describe God's holiness and his holy otherness. In 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, it says this. Listen to this description. He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Is that quite a description or what? The idea here is that God is so blinding in his light that none of us who are human can walk into it and see him. That's intense, right? That, that's something that we're not used to. This is a picture of the holiness of God, the purity of God. The use of light in the Bible starts right in the beginning of the book of Genesis, right? We're familiar with this. What does it say? And God said what? Let there be light. And there was light, and God, God saw that the light was good. What is The light was an effect from God himself. He was creating in his nature something similar that represented him. Why was the light good? Because it came from God. And the Bible ends with the use of light in describing the resurrection of Jesus. So you go bookend, right? Genesis, Revelation, it bookends the picture. Look at these varied illustrations of light just in this description of Jesus alone. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on seeing, or on turning, sorry, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe and with a golden sash around his waist. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all its strength. Just look at the illustrations of light in that passage. It says here, seven gold lampstands. What are lampstands? Symbols of light, right? The menorah that was in the Holy of Holies, the lampstands. Uh, it says that... Uh, his head was white like wool, like snow. That's also a symbol of light. His eyes were like a flame of fire. That's a symbol of light. His feet like burnished bronze. That's a symbol of light. Refined in a furnace, his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. What do we think of when we see stars? Light. In the night, in the darkness, we see the stars. We see, unless you're in Seattle with light pollution or fog, right? But normal people see stars, okay? We have to go to Eastern Washington to do that. But then from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining at its full strength. Right? We know we cannot look at the sun with our, uh, our regular eyes for any period of time because not only is it hard to do, but it also causes damage to our eyes. This is speaking of something way beyond that. Right? This is speaking of something much more powerful than that. All these powerful images here of the resurrected Lord Jesus are connected to light. Again, God is light. 
Let's go back to the Gospel of John and, and now look at how he uses the illustration uh, of light for God and Jesus. Right? It says this, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's even today. Amen? Amen. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Over and over and over again, the Bible uses light to describe God, to describe his goodness, to describe his, his presence. James captures the same picture in his epistle. And this is in James 1's, you know this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. What? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the what? Father of lights. Right? See how that picture is cemented there? The five, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Uh, if you're in NIV, it's shifting shadow. I like that better. Right? There's no variation in them. There's no wavering. Another way to say this is that God is pure radiance, pure energy, pure source. There's no darkness in his spirit or person. That's very important today because many, many people think it very cavalier to attribute evil to God and to attribute much of what's wrong with the world to God and to find fault with God to find darkness in God, to find actually evil in God. And the Bible will have none of that. The Bible will not go there. The Bible says that God is light. Uh, there's no darkness in his spirit or person. This is reflected even in the blessings that were given. When you think about the Old Testament and the blessings that uh, God laid out for his people, uh, Moses and Aaron were, and his sons were to speak this blessing over Israel. In number six, you find this, it says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face, what? To shine upon you. The idea is if my life is blessed, it's going to be full of light. We do not think of if my life is blessed, I'll be full of darkness. Right? What do we think? If my life is blessed, it's going to be full of light. May his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The light of the Lord on our lives. Psalm 4 echoes this. Look at what it says here. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. What's the psalmist's answers? answer to that? Who's going to show us some good? God will show us some good. The Lord's going to show us some good. How's he going to show us good? His face is going to shine upon us. Lift up your light. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In other words, even though they have all the stuff they need in terms of food or that kind of stuff, I'd rather your presence, Lord. Psalm 18, 28, even more clear. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. Has that been true? You ever been in darkness and the Lord's lighting up your darkness? I, I remember uh, coming in from darkness to light and, and the Lord used an amazing illustration of it. He used powdered milk, which is white, right? 
And so I'm standing in four feet of powdered milk thinking, man, I just walked into God's countenance. Good night, right? He has funny ways of illustrating things, people. And uh, this, this is the Lord lightens my darkness. You ever had the Lord just turn the light bulb on and go, ah, wow, wow. He's good that way. He's good that way. Jesus brings all this together in one concise statement. He says this in John 8. Again, this is John, but this is from his gospel. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's Jesus' moniker. It could be the banner across the sash that he wears on his chest. I am the light of the world. If we have light within us, it's because God has put that light within us. Light describes the moral character of God, and his light drives out my darkness. So then John moves on to this next thought, which is this. We find this in 1 John 5 and 6. This is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. Are you getting the pattern here? Right? It just repeats itself over and over. It's trying to get our attention on this. That God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. First, let's understand the context. John, again, here is talking to his opponents, the Gnostics. And they were making several claims that John is confronting. Uh, Expositor's Bible commentary lays it out nicely, so we'll just take it from there. Here's the Gnostic positions that, they, that John is arguing against. This is the backdrop for why John wrote what he wrote. Uh, number one, Gnostics are saying, moral behavior is a matter of indifference in one's relationship to God. Now, <clears throat> what that means is this. Hey, you know, God is God, we're just people. And, and we've got a body and we've got flesh and we do bodily and flesh things. And, uh, but the pure side of me pursues the spirit. So whatever I do in my body really doesn't matter at all. It, it's of no factor because it doesn't impact how I relate to God. And so therefore, by extrapolation, I can do whatever I want in my body and then I can just turn around and I'll be right with God because sin has no impact on it. And John's going, no, that's not true. Second thing is immoral conduct does not count as sin for one who knows God. If you've been born again, or in the Gnostic sense, you've learned the secret truths and come into the light, then you don't have to worry about this because it doesn't total up anymore. And we know that that's not true either, right? Then number three, the knowledge of God removes sin as even a possibility in the life of a believer. The Gnostics were saying you could hit total sanctification. You could walk so in the light that you would no longer ever sin again or walk in darkness anymore. And John's going, no, that's not true either. Okay. John is saying that if we, we walk this way, the way these guys are saying it, it says, I can sin and it has no effect on my relationship with God, then we're lying and we don't practice the truth. The commentary goes on to say that uh, the Gnostics also were infamous for not having a love for one another. They had a hard time getting along because they were arguing over who was more holy, right? And uh, they hated their brothers and that they claim sinlessness. 
And the big one is that they denied that Jesus came in the flesh. See, from a Gnostic perspective, Jesus couldn't have been flesh because flesh is bad. And that would have meant he was impure, compromised. And so he must have been a spirit or illumination. We said last week, a hologram kind of idea that he was pretending to have a body but didn't really have a body. John's going, knock that foolishness off. He had a real body. I know I was there. I talked to him. I held him. I know what I saw. Um, so, so this John is contrasting this and, and it's saying that walking in darkness is the same as abiding in darkness or living in darkness. So then John quotes this in chapter 3 it says this and this is the judgment light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God I use an old farming illustration here. Have you ever, uh, and you don't have to come from a farm, uh, Northwest works fine, same thing because you got the moldy. Have you ever seen a board laid on the ground right for a while? Kind of sinks into the dirt. And if you come over and you, you grab that board and you kind of rip that board up and there's all those little bugs under there, right, that you see, when you pull that board up, do they go, hoo-hoo, light, sunglasses on, bronze me, baby. Is that what they do? No, what do they do? Right? They scurry for the darkness. If you've got mice and you turn a light on, they go, thank you so much. We couldn't see our way around your house. This is fabulous. We've got light. No, what do they do? Right? And the Bible's saying the same thing. Our response to God's light is a critical indicator of where we are. If we scurry from it, then it's saying we love the darkness rather than the light. We want to stay hidden. We don't ever want to come clean. And John is saying, uh, just the way bugs react to the board being pulled up, so mankind tends to react when God's light comes into the situation. But whoever does what is true or clean or pure comes to the light. so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God, that God was the author of those works. If we say we have fellowship him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. First uh, John, again, now verses 7 and 8, we'll take it one step further. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The basis that John points out for, for our fellowship, in other words, what's our love relationship and our family sense that we have here at Northview and, and what God does in every church comes from what? The fact that we walk in the light because he has saved us. He has led us into the light. He has shed his light into our hearts. John's pointing out that our fellowship results from the foundation that was laid by Jesus in his death on the cross and his resulting uh, shed blood 
that was there for the remission of our sins. And it says that this shed blood is the propitiation or the covering. It's the protection uh, of our sins. In the Northwest, we would understand it as an umbrella, right? Covering uh, from the rain. Only in this case, it's not a covering of rain, but rather the covering and forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9 tells us that in the Old Testament sacrifices, so if you go back to uh, the, the law, right? The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those five books. By the way, some great stuff in those books. You've never gone there. I really encourage you to read them. But Hebrews 9 tells us that in those sacrifices, it says this, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And the Old Testament was illustrating the incredible cost of sin. Now, we may think it's gory and icky and all that kind of stuff in our modern day because we're sophisticated and we go to Safeway, right? And that's, that's our idea of animal sacrifice. Well, when you had animals, that was your wealth of the day. That was your money, right? Cattle, uh, sheep, goats, that kind of stuff was your equity. That's how you built wealth. And when you did something that really botched it, and you knew it really botched it with God, you had to take one of your best animals. They had to be pure. It couldn't be a deformed animal. It couldn't be a crippled animal. It couldn't be a defective animal. It had to be a pure animal. And you had to take that, bring that to the altar, watch the priest slice the throat of that animal, watch the blood, watch them throw it against the altar, and you recognized your sin cost you. And it was very tangible. One of the things that is totally missing in, in the pages of Scripture is the smell, the smells of those things. Okay? If you grew up on a farm and you grew up butchering, you know blood has a very distinct smell. It never leaves you. You can pick a whiff of that up and go, wow, I know exactly what that is. And they were left not just with the sight, but the smell of what their sin cost them. And they knew that sin was costly. They had seen the life of that animal taken, which should have been their life. And they realized that it cost a lot to ransom their soul. How much do you think it costs to ransom your and my soul? What's the price tag to it? Psalm 49 says this, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. The life of a man's, the ransom of a man's life is costly. And that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus covered this price tag. John is telling us that Jesus did it on the cross as our great high priest, and what he did there was far beyond and much superior to anything found in the Old Testament. That the whole Old Testament pointed towards what Jesus would do and accomplish. And thus John can claim confidently that the shed blood of Jesus can cleanse us from all our sin. Underline the word all. This is fantastic news. All our sin is washed. Think about that once. A lot of times we get to the place where we go, ah, that, I think most of my sin is washed. There's probably one or two that God's not really going to forgive me for. We do that a lot, don't we? 
It says here, all of it's washed. In the shed blood of Jesus, all our sins are washed. Satan would not want us to believe that. Satan would not want that, us to believe that that's true. But that is why we should be the most grateful people on the planet. Esther, in leading worship, when we talked about joy. Notice how gratefulness, joy, and light go together. Right? They just mesh like this. They fit. There's two caveats, though. The first one is this. First, John says you've got to be willing to admit you sin. This is aimed at the Gnostics who claimed they had reached perfect sanctification. In other words, not only don't I sin, but I'm uh, incapable of sinning anymore. And John's going, no, hogwash. John is saying there's no such thing. If we say we have no sin, he says we actually deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. And, and I suggest here that self-deception, uh, we're all capable of it, right? And it's easier to fall into than you think. You ever deceived yourself? Right? Lied about, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. Yeah, it's not that bad. And then later you go, boy, I'm not doing okay. <laughs> Am I the only one? Hello? Come on, join me. Please, walk with me. But then the second part is we must be willing to confess our sins. That means we've got to let God know. We find this in the next verse. Look at verses 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we've made him a liar and his word is not in us. And so we have to confess our sins. In the confession, God is able to forgive. And when we confess, God cleanses us from what? He cleanses us from un unrighteousness. Another word for that would be darkness. He scrubs the spot out. He scrubs the stain out. He puts it and makes it light again. Much like if you get a white cloth stain, you put shout on it, throw it in the wash, it comes out white again. Right? Same idea here of what God does. The recognition of sin then becomes the pivot point for both the unbeliever and the believer. Same idea, same process for both. If the unbeliever refuses to recognize or acknowledge their sin, they become blind to the gospel. Look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. He says this, and watch the imagery here. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light. Keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And Paul goes on to say, in the next verses, for what we proclaim is not of ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said... Let light shine out of darkness. That's a direct quote right there from Genesis. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Notice the parallel between Paul and John here and the use of light. Isn't that incredible? It's just interwoven. But this light darkness is illustrated in the context of sin. And that's why when an unbeliever prays to receive Christ, what do we call it? We call it the sinner's prayer, right? 
when they are praying to receive God's light, we call it the sinner's prayer. God, forgive me of my sins. God, get me out of darkness. Lead me to the light. But it's the same for the believer. That's why we sing what? I saw the light. Right? Because both have the experience of re-stepping into light. As a believer, and we'll talk more about this next week, we are to continually, John will go on, to keep stepping towards light, to keep stepping towards love, to keep stepping towards light. And, and we'll talk about that next week. But these are the driving paradigms of the kingdom of God. There's also an aspect of this that is true for believers. Uh, if we are saying, John says, if we're saying we haven't sinned, uh, then we're calling God a liar. And we are not tracking with what the word actually says. And in this situation, then God's discipline comes on us. And it can, in all kinds of different ways, but I'm just going to pick one this morning uh, to use an example. It's common these days for young couples uh, to not only engage in premarital sex, but actually live together before they're married and attend church at the same time. And they'll walk up to you and they'll talk to you and they'll say, oh, he's so blessed us. We're walking with the Lord. We're walking in his light. And they're actually quite shocked when I say to them, may I share with you why I would be concerned for your marriage? And that the statistics are really good that you will end in divorce in five to seven years from now. They're like, what? And I take them through 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 through 8, and basically uh, you can look there later, but what the pastor says, hey, you're walking with God, you need to keep walking, keep going, you're doing great. Uh, but listen, uh, don't treat your body like a Rubbermaid garbage can. Treat it like a fine piece of china for God's sanctification. Avoid sexual immorality. By the way, sexual immorality is fornication. That's having sex before you're married. And then it's adultery. That's having sex with someone who's not your marriage partner. Off of those two pegs hangs everything else in Scripture. So when the Bible says avoid sexual immorality, it's saying avoid fornication, and it's saying avoid adul adultery. Just so we're clear, because that's so muddied up in our day. That, that's what it's saying there. So it says avoid sexual immorality. Don't cheat. Don't defraud. Don't transgress or trespass against each other. Why? Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. An avenger is when something wrong has been committed, the avenger comes in to right the wrong, right? We've got the whole Avenger series. You've got Superman, you've got Batman, old school Lone Ranger. Any old Lone Ranger posse out there? Come on. Yeah, there we go. Awesome. Right? That God plays that role. And this puts believers in a terrible predicament because the very God you're praying to is the guy who's coming to right the wrong. He's coming to shed light on the situation. And it says this, he who rejects his teaching is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit. And I asked them, how well do you think that Christian life will work without the Holy Spirit? Duh, not very good, right? And their answer is always, well, not, not very well, I guess. And how well do you think your marriage will work without the Holy Spirit? And they're usually pretty quiet at that point, often looking at the floor. And then I show them what they're up against. And I want to just show us, because this illustrates the light point that we're talking about this morning. And this is just one illustration. You could do this with a lot of stuff, but we'll just use this for this morning. So when a, uh, uh, the, here's the nature of a marriage, all right? Nature of a marriage is you can have a guy and a gal. That's a good thing. 
And they can both be walking in the Spirit. The guy can be walking in the Spirit, and the gal can be walking in the Spirit. When that happens, it usually works pretty good. But we live in a fallen world. We have sin natures. So there's other combinations that can take effect here. So the guy might be in the flesh. And then the gal might be in the spirit. Right? So the gal's praying and the guy's not. How well does that work, gentlemen? Right? You ever tried that in your marriage? Yeah, it's a winner, isn't it? Or the other flip can happen. The guy's in the spirit and the gal's in the flesh. How well does that work? No, you're, it's, it's out of balance. It's, it's unequally yoked. Or you can have this combination. They both can be in the flesh. The guy's in the flesh and the gal's in the flesh. If you have ever tangled with each other when you are off and you're both not walking and you both are carnal and you both go at it, how well does it go? Woohoo! No? You're being very quiet right now. I'm not trying to convict you. This is other people, other churches outside of here. Come on. You're all walking. How well does it go? Not well at all, right? John is saying you've got to walk towards the light. Walking towards the light is walking towards the spirit. And couples, when they see that, I say to them, if you live the next five to seven years of your marriage outside the love of God, and you live in the flesh together, that bottom rung, right? Everything drops to the lowest common denominator. You live in that bottom rung together. What do you think the odds are going to be that you're still together in seven to ten years? And it's sobering. It shocks them because they think their love is enough to carry them through everything. Those of us who have been married a little longer know that it's God's love who carries us through everything. Amen? Yes. And on top of that, do you have God's blessing if you're willingly living in sin? It's a shock to them that the very guy they're praying to is the one now coming after them to avenge their sin. Now, fortunately and encouragingly, many, many of them repent and course correct. They turn. It's so clear. They go, we want the top. We're not the bottom. We've got to get some stuff turned around. And they, they course correct. They turn to obedience. They turn back to the light. And that's really one of the great fun things about what I get to do is watch people you turn from darkness and head back towards light. Okay, the same thing uh, as what happens. I'm sorry, here. Uh, the, the principle at work here, the same thing as what happens with the unbeliever, the confession of sin. What John says is true. You can't walk in darkness and say you're walking in light. Right, back to John's thought. The confession of sin is one of the foundational principles for us to be able to walk in the light. It's one of the foundational principles for accessing God's forgiveness and cleansing. And not only cleansing, but healing. And we, we forget this, but it's really important. James gives us this added insight in his epistle. He says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And that is talking about when you go to another brother or sister in Christ and you confess your sin to them and they pray for you, that prayer has a powerful effect. And one of the reasons we miss out on healing is because we never confess to anybody. I only confess to the Lord. 
well, John will talk about this farther in his epistle, but John's, James is saying, it doesn't say to the Lord, it says what? To one another. Now, why confess to one another? Well, James says healing comes from it. James says there's great power in it. You know, the accusation of people outside the church when they evaluate the church, uh, what they say is that, why they're just a bunch of hypocrites, right? They're sinners too. They're just walking around together thinking they're all goodies, such and such, and that kind of stuff. And uh, where they can find leverage with that is when we become plastic. How are you doing? Fine. Just fine. I'm not going to tell you that I sinned like a banshee this week or I sinned against my wife or my kids or I sinned at work or I did. I'm not going to tell you that. I'm just fine. The problem with this picture is that we ourselves become deceived. We think church is about presentation. It's about performance. Rather, it's about gathering together and covering each other and walking with each other in the confession of our sins together. We think church is about putting on a good show. I tell, uh, people ask me now because I'm older uh, and have done ministry for a long time, what's, what's, what do you think is the number one thing wrong with Christian homes, Christian families? And I, I, this is my response. The number one thing, the number one mismanaged thing in Christian homes is anger. And here's what happens. We think we're at home, nobody can hear us, so we let it fly. We don't think that'll ever catch up to us. And we come to church, and we walk into church, and we smile. But what do our kids pick up on? Home or church? Home. Remember the old saying, do what I say, not what I do? What do kids do? What you do. Right? Sin? What sin? I don't sin, seriously. A much better picture is that of the church being a hospital. You know, the funny thing about a hospital, even the doctors and nurses get sick once in a while. We come together because we have sin, not because we're sinless. We've come together because we recognize there's a need. We have a need. We need a Savior to cleanse us and wash us from our sin. Why? Because we do it quite often. Almost every week. You know, if you go to a hospital, do you think it's strange to walk into a hospital and see sick people? Oh, look, there's sick people here. What in the world is going on? Is that how you'd react? No. What do you, when you go to a hospital, what do you expect? Sick people. That's what hospitals are for. You know, likewise, it shouldn't be strange to see sick and sinful people at a church either. The only time we get in trouble is when we pretend we aren't. If we walk around like we're totally sanctified and have no sin, then John says the truth's not in us either. By the way, that's the beautiful power of a community group. We, we run community groups here at our church, and uh, we encourage you to be part of one. It's where I can be known. It's where I can be safe, and it's a great place 
where I can confess my sin. And brothers and sisters will listen. I can be forgiven. I can move forward because of that forgiveness. And it's kept within the group. What's shared in the group stays in the group. And we all need a place like that. We all need a place where we can relax and, and let our hair down and let people know what our real struggles are. We carry each other when we're strong and we let our friends carry us when we're weak. And the Holy Spirit of God shines through the cracks in the broken vessels. So the question this morning is this. Who do you confess your sin to? Is there anybody, is there anybody in your life that you know you could go to and say, hey, I messed up this week. Bad. I need, I need to confess to you and I need you to pray for me. Is there anybody like that in your life? And if there's not, why not find somebody? James says it's a source of healing. John says it'll head us towards the light. Nothing but good can come from it. It just takes some courage. Let me read this again and we'll close. But in 1 John, it says, But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Let's be people of truth. Let's be people of light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we walk through this incredibly powerful linked pictures of light. It's all over your word. It's, it literally shines out from your word. Lord, as we walk through that this morning, we recognize that in you there's no variation or shifting shadow. That's not true of us. There are dark spots. There are places where we fail. There's places where we turn on you and we turn on each other. There's places where we lack faith, we choose to believe. There's places where we want to stay in darkness and not walk in the light. Lord, we pray this morning this was useful on your behalf, that you can have a conversation with us and encourage us where we need to be encouraged in this. Encourage those who are walking and heading towards the light. And Lord, encourage those of us who are stuck, maybe stuck in some darkness or sin that uh, now is... We started out controlling it. It's now starting to control us. It's mastered us. And we need to confess our way out of it. Lord, we seek you this morning that you'd be at work and great things would come out of uh, this message that it would free up life and light in our fellowship. And Lord, we seek you for our community as well. Lord, we know that there's a lot of darkness in those really beautiful homes. We ask that you would break out with your light. Give that to you in your name. Amen.